Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. About 40 years ago, a young college graduate, Mike Worth, joined Chevron, then and now one of the largest energy companies in the world. Today, Mike Worth is the CEO of Chevron and dealing with the multiple issues that energy companies have to deal with today, including renewable energy. I sat down with Mike Worth to talk about what it's like to run Chevron today in the current environment. So tell me about the state of the oil world right now. Uh, it seems as if the large oil companies or energy, carbon energy companies are doing quite well. They have record profits, record revenues. Uh, and as a result of that, some people uh, in the White House and other places have suggested a windfall profits tax. So is the industry in such great shape that it can afford a windfall profits tax? Well, it's a cyclical industry, David. Uh, we see prices go up, we see prices go down. Uh, a windfall profits tax is, uh, is not going to encourage more supply. It's not likely to reduce prices. In fact, it could do quite the opposite. President Carter tried a windfall profits tax in 1980. Uh, it was rescinded several years later, had collected a lot less revenue than was expected, and didn't result in more investment. It uh, resulted in less investment and less production. So normally, if you want less of something, you tend to put more taxes on it. You want less smoking, you tax cigarettes. Uh, if we want more energy production, we want more supply to bring prices down, putting taxes on, uh, on energy production is probably not a good idea. Your current job, do you have to go to Washington to talk to regulators and legislators, and do you find that an uplifting experience to do that? I do have to go to Washington. Um, Uplifting is probably not the first word that comes to mind. I mean, they're, they're detailed discussions, and, uh, and, and we need to help uh, regulators understand the potential consequences of uh, some of the things they consider. So uh, would you say that Washington, by and large, doesn't really understand the economics of the energy industry, or they could learn a little bit more than they know now? Well, I have empathy for people that sit in these roles. Uh, they have often broad responsibilities, and they may not have uh, personal expertise and depth in some of the areas they're responsible for. So I view my job is to come in and try to provide objective input and help them understand the consequences of things they're considering to avoid unintended consequences and help achieve the goals that, that they're looking to achieve. So when the President of the United States says energy companies are gouging American people, uh, you get to be used to this when you're an energy executive, more or less, I assume. Uh, you know, you don't like it, but you probably are Accepting of it by I, now. I, I, I disagree with uh, that characterization. I don't think it's accurate. Um, this is a you know we're we're an industry of price takers, not right. price makers. These are global commodity markets, and um, and prices go up, prices come down. Uh, we allocate billions of dollars to capital. Our company does every year. Uh, just two years ago, we were losing billions of dollars uh, as prices plummeted, uh, and so uh, through the cycle, it's an industry that generates kind of 10%-ish returns on capital employed, uh, which is, uh, I think, by the standards of many other industries, uh, a pretty modest return. Now, the war in Ukraine has driven oil prices up, I think it's fair to say. Um, do you think that that is a principal reason why the major energy companies are doing quite well, because the supply has been uh, reduced 
because of the war in Ukraine. And do you think that when that war does end, eventually it will, I assume, uh, it'll have an impact on reducing energy prices in carbon areas? Well, the, the war and the associated actions have uh, definitely had an impact on energy markets. But if you step back uh, and look at the, the broader context, in 2020, uh, we saw demand collapse with the pandemic when the world uh, really locked down. In fact, companies in our industry uh, had to shut in wells and stop producing because there was no place to store the oil that wasn't needed by the market. So investment levels came down. And then as the, uh, and nobody knew how long this would last. As the economy recovered post the pandemic, we got vaccines, uh, demand returned. Uh, the industry's been uh, struggling to keep up with the, the rate of growth once again. And so the market was already in a, in a pretty tight situation before this war began. I do think uh, when eventually it's resolved, uh, and all conflicts eventually are resolved, I think that uh, uncertainty and the risk to supply from one of the world's largest suppliers uh, will be reduced, and I think we'll see uh, markets reflect that. A number of years ago, oil prices went as low as, I think, $20 a barrel. And when it was that low, major oil companies, like I think Chevron and others, said we can't afford to drill anymore in either, let's say, Alaska, the North Sea, other places, because we need to have oil at $70 a barrel to make drilling uh, affordable and, and profitable. Um, has that come back now that oil prices are up? Are people now drilling in major projects around the world to kind of get oil that's going to take four or five or 10 years to build and, and drill? Or is that not happening again? We're seeing some of that happen again, certainly. Uh, what has really changed in the last decade, David, is the uh, what we see in the U.S. in the Permian Basin, but also in some other uh, parts of this country and in other countries now, is uh, the ability to produce oil and gas from uh, rock that is very, very dense, very hard, and historically has not been very productive. But with directional drilling and the ability to, to fracture these formations now, uh, we're seeing the ability to produce from areas that we couldn't before and at prices that are, are lower than some of these very complex, difficult projects. And so the need for the, uh, the ultra deep water, the Arctic, um, has been reduced as we see these other resources come in at a, at a lower cost. So how many employees does Chevron have? About 36,000 in about 100 different countries. And how much oil do you produce a day? A little, little bit over 3 million barrels of oil equivalent per day. So mostly oil, some gas, and we convert the units on the gas to give you the energy equivalent. So about 3 million barrels a so day. So the United States produces 10 million barrels a day or something like that? Closer to 12. 12, okay. So you're producing about 25% uh, of the oil produced in the United States, more or less? As a company, you could say that uh, our U.S. production is about 1.2 million barrels a day. So we're, we're less than 10% of, uh, of U.S. production. So right now, the United States is more or less energy sufficient compared to, let's say, the 1960s or 70s when we imported a lot of oil. I think we produce, we probably consume 10 to 12 million barrels a day. Mm, closer to 20. We, we consume 20 million barrels a day and we produce roughly, you're saying 12. So we're importing the equivalent of about 8 million barrels a day, which is better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Where are we mostly importing that from? Is it from OPEC countries? Canada, our neighbors uh, are, the, are the largest uh, you know, suppliers of oil. I mean, you, you, know, you heard all, remember all the controversy around the Keystone pipeline. We're a big uh, customer of Canada, who's a, a, a large resource country right well, next door. How do you door. get that oil down here? There are other pipelines that have been built uh, in, in years gone by. And sometimes it flows by rail. 
Uh, and some of it comes by ship. Uh, you can bring it down uh, through pipelines into ports along the West Coast, for instance, or in, into the Atlantic Basin and, and, and bring it by ship. So Canada's the largest uh, supplier, and then other people in the region. And uh, we, we still bring some oil to this country from the Middle East, but much less than we did back now, in the Now, do you think there's much oil to be found in the lower 48 at this point, or even in, let's say, Alaska as well, or mostly we know where all the oil is, and uh, there's no more big Permian Basin kind of uh, deposits anywhere? People have said that over time, and then we've always been surprised. And so uh, the U.S. has been explored more than any other, other place in the world. I think the industry has a good idea. Uh, but technology allows you sometimes to recover things that you, you haven't been able to before. That's the story of shale. Uh, the other one that continues to be a positive story is uh, Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, where we'll go out and drill in um, a mile or more of water depth and then go down several more miles, six, seven, eight miles into the earth and, uh, and find uh, large, large fields. And the, the Gulf of Mexico is still relatively underexplored compared to the onshore. So I think there's still room for, for more discovery. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about Chevron itself. What is the roots of Chevron? When was Chevron created? When did it start? Founded in 1879 in uh, Southern California, began as a company called Pacific Coast Oil Company, uh, made the first commercial discovery in California in Pico Canyon in, in Southern California, became part of the Rockefeller Standard Oil Trust uh, in the latter part of the 1800s, and then became Standard Oil of California when uh, the Standard Oil Trust was broken up. Our headquarters and home has always been in California. We've been around for 143 years and really a part of the world's history. We made the first discovery in the Middle East, first discovery of oil in Saudi Arabia, uh, among other milestones, and uh, a long uh, history of, uh, of the world really reflected in our company. So if I go to a gasoline station and want to get gasoline from my car, is there really a difference between the oil that Chevron might be produced that made in the gasoline and one of your competitors? That gasoline is pretty much all the same? There are specifications, minimum standards that have to be met for, for the products. Uh, and then what you find is that different companies um, either exceed those by more or less than others. And also, uh, we have special additives. So we have a wholly owned uh, additive company uh, that manufactures an additive called Tecron that has a very special chemistry to keep engine parts clean. And as engines get more sophisticated, as the tolerances get thinner, you can have carbon deposits that can affect performance in your cylinders, your injectors. Tecron cleans that up better so than others. So if you're driving along and you need gas, will you stop at an Exxon station or you've got to keep going till you can see a Chevron station? Keep going till I see a Chevron station. Okay, let's talk about your own background. So um, how does one become the CEO of Chevron? Tell us, where were you born? I was born in Los Alamos, New Mexico. My dad worked at the National Lab uh, and, uh, and I grew up in uh, Colorado, Golden, Colorado. And you went to college where? University of Colorado in Boulder, studied chemical engineering. And you said, I want to work in the energy world? 
I, at the time, uh, you know, chemical engineers could work in a, a number of different industries. I, I had a summer internship where I worked in a refinery in the Denver area. Found the work interesting. I found the people interesting, and uh, and had an offer to come to uh, the West Coast and work for Standard of California. And it looked like a, a, a fun place to uh, live and a place where I could do interesting work. So basically, this is the your only employer since you graduated from college, more for, or less, for forty years. The only employer. So when you're starting there 40 years ago, did you say, I might be the CEO someday, or did you not think that was realistic? No, I just hoped I would last to the next two weeks to get my next paycheck. That was never a given game plan. So what did you do? Did you move around the world uh, over the course of your 40 years at uh, Chevron? What did you do to kind of rise up? Were you an uh, operations person or an exploration person, an administrative person? Started out as a design engineer and worked on big projects. So um, an oil shale project, not the type that we developed today, but the other kind of oil shale you used to hear about. Um, built a plant that you can't find any trace of today. Worked on a, a facility in California to help bring in oil from offshore. Sold for pennies on the dollar eventually. Um, a project in Africa that never happened because of a civil war. So I began by specializing in spectacularly uh, unsuccessful projects. Uh, and at some point I said, this doesn't look like a great career path. And so I moved into our marketing business where I built gas stations and um, replaced underground tanks that were made of steel with ones that were made of fiberglass so they wouldn't leak. And um, you, you and I remember the old clickety-clackety wheels that would spin around on a gasoline pump. Um, I used to put in the first electronic uh, pumps uh, back in the day. So these were smaller projects, but I could see the beginning, the end. I started to understand the commerce and how the, the business worked. And from there, a variety of roles, primarily operating roles across different businesses and, uh, and around the world. When did you become the CEO? Uh, five years ago, in 2018. Now, some people might say that God looks favorably upon the CEOs of energy companies because he lets them live a long time. And a number of your predecessors have lived quite a while, and, and uh, some of them you live in your same area that you live in now. Does they call you with advice all the time? Actually, I'm, I'm really fortunate, David. The, the three people who have done my job immediately preceding me, each for roughly a decade, the, the 1990s, the 2000s, and the, in the, the 20-teens, uh, live within a few miles of where I live. Uh, I see them regularly. We have lunch together, and um, that's a plus. In I, other words, uh, don't they tell you you're doing this wrong or doing that wrong? That doesn't come up. Well, I, I get a lot of good advice, and 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 um, you asked earlier about advice. These are people who have actually done my job, so I, I really am interested in their advice. They've lived through uh, wars, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, terrorist attacks, financial crises. They've seen oil markets go through uh, gyrations. They've dealt with geopolitical surprises. And so their advice is really valuable. During COVID, the first first thing I did was call each one of them and say, what lessons did you learn during the crises you faced? How do you think I should handle things as we have this pandemic unfolding? Uh, so we have a great relationship and I see them regularly. So you're still, by my standards, very young and uh, you've been the CEO for five years. So you could do it for quite a while and still be young, but do you have any ambition to go into the federal government as a cabinet officer or anything like that? No. And to do anything other than the energy industry, would you have any other career ambitions or this is what you want to do? You know, I love what I do. I love the company I work for and the people that I work with. And um, I, I don't have any ambition to do anything other than a good job. So what do you do for relaxation? 
generally anything that involves family. Uh, so I have four children. Uh, they're very active in outdoor activities. My wife is uh, a good golfer, a good skier. Uh, so uh, you'll find me on a golf course skiing, scuba diving, uh, fly fishing uh, with family when I'm not at work. And any of your children in the energy world? No, not even close. Okay. So are you a good golfer? There's some of you that if you have a low handicap, that's not good for being a CEO because it means you're spending too much time uh, on the golf course. But I don't know whether that's fair or not. But are you a scratch handicap golfer? Far from it. Uh, my wife is almost a scratch handicap golfer. Uh, I caddy for her in, uh, in big tournaments. Uh, I actually sometimes will take a couple of vacation days and carry her golf bag. So that tells you who the better golfer is in my Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. What are you most proud of having achieved so far, other than being the CEO? What do you think is the, your, your record of accomplishments so far that you're most proud of? Well, the last five years have been an interesting five years for people in just about any business. And, um, and so, you know, when the pandemic hit, we have people on ships, we have people on offshore platforms, we have people around the world uh, in developed countries and in developing countries. Uh, navigating that, uh, keeping people safe, keeping our business running, keeping the world supplied with energy, uh, has been no small task. It's been one of the most challenging things I've, I've ever uh, confronted. And during that same time, we've done a massive restructuring of our business. We've made a couple of acquisitions and integrated them to make the company stronger. We're a much better company today than we were a few years ago. And I'm proud of the progress that our people have made uh, during this uh, challenging and tumultuous time. Is this a career path you would recommend to young people? Let's say young people are watching and they say, well, maybe I should go into the energy world. Would you recommend this to young people? There's never been a better time to come into the energy world. We're, we're faced with this incredible challenge of meeting uh, the demands of the world today and building a lower carbon energy system for tomorrow. The technology that's available to us, the innovation that's available to us is greater than it's ever been. And the chance to make a difference uh, is enormous. If I were my younger self, uh, looking for a job, I would absolutely come into this industry. Large carbon energy companies uh, seem to me have a difficulty. Are they producing large amounts of carbon energy, which people like to consume, or are they supposed to transition to being renewable energy companies? And what are you doing, for example, to transition yourself a bit to be a renewable company? Well, we're, we're focused on uh, leveraging our strengths to deliver lower carbon energy to a growing world. And what that means is in the near term, we can find ways, and we are finding ways, to reduce the greenhouse gas impact of the energy the world uses today. So we're reducing the emissions associated with oil and gas uh, that the world needs today, needs very, very desperately. And at the same time, we're building new lower, car inherently lower carbon energy businesses for tomorrow. So things like renewable fuels, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, geothermal are all technologies we're investing in, businesses we're growing that will play a bigger role tomorrow. And we're gonna need many solutions. There is, no one, there is no one solution for this. So in 2022, you bought a renewable energy company for roughly, I think, $3 billion. Mm -hmm. What was that about? Why did you wanna do that? Well, we had a, we had a renewable, renewable fuels business ourselves. Uh, this company, Renewable Energy Group, uh, was one of the leading 
producers of biodiesel and soon to be renewable diesel in the United States. And they have um, great capabilities in the feedstock sourcing uh, area. And so in any fuels business, raw materials are a very important part of the overall value chain. Traditional uh, petroleum products, we have deep expertise in the raw materials sourcing for that. In these products, uh, you're talking about raw materials that are like used cooking oil, something called distiller's corn oil, uh, various bean oils from soybean and other agricultural products. These are markets that we don't have a lot of experience in. The quality, logistics, commercial uh, dimensions of those markets are things that uh, Renewable Energy Group is very good at. They have manufacturing facilities and some marketing. We have big market positions and brand positions, particularly in states like California that encourage this. So the combination of the two makes a more powerful renewable energy business. And today, uh, in renewable area, which is obviously a growth area, mm -hmm. um, do you think that if you were going to make more acquisitions without giving away inside information, you're likely to do more in the renewable area or in the carbon area? You know, it's an active uh, field of opportunity in both. Uh, for us, it's really driven by um, strategy, asset quality, value, I mean, the typical things you would look at when, when you do a deal. Uh, but as I said, over the last two years, we, we've done a big traditional energy deal. We've done a big renewable acquisition. I think in the years ahead, we'll probably do acquisitions in both of those spaces. When President Nixon took office, shortly thereafter, there was an oil spill in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And then under President Obama, there was an oil spill in the Gulf um, Horizon. It was, I think, a British Petroleum. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, when you're drilling offshore, how safe is it uh, to be able to avoid those kind of environmental damage? Is it much better than it used to be or greater precautions than there used to be? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and I think you know, the industry has uh, continually improved uh, operating practices, uh, equipment, uh, certainly the regulators in the U.S. have very high standards. We work very closely with the regulators on that. Uh, and the advent of uh, newer technologies have uh, continually made this safer. And so uh, these, are, these are challenging, difficult operations in those kinds of pressures, water depths, and, and environments. Uh, but the industry has a, uh, has a strong track record today. Uh, and you know, there have been some notable incidents over time, but uh, every company in this industry works really hard to, to prevent those. So um, today, do you not worry about that kind of offshore uh, drilling problems anymore because the safety is pretty good compared to what it used to be? You know, every day I get up and I worry about safety and um, protecting the environment. Uh, our people work in a demanding business and uh, it's a highly technical activity. We have very talented people. Uh, we've got very strict protocols and standards to keep people safe and keep the environment safe, but you can never take it for granted. Why do you think it is that People love energy, but they don't love energy companies. In other words, people in the United States and around the world consume enormous amounts of oil and gas, and the people that provide it, like Chevron, don't seem to be so popular. Why is that? You know, um, I don't know exactly why it is. Uh, you know, we're a big company. The, the, the numbers are big. Uh, sometimes big isn't popular. Big energy, big government, big tech. Uh, maybe big private equities, uh, an exception to that. Uh, but, you know, although we're a big company, uh, we represent uh, less than 2% of global oil production. And so in the scheme of things, it's a very competitive market, and we're a relatively small player. And I think, uh, you know, what's important uh, to remember is we need to have a balanced approach to energy. And that means uh, we have to focus on affordability, because affordable energy is really essential for economic prosperity. 
uh, reliable supply for national security, because energy security and national security are linked, and then protecting the environment. And I think as prices get high and it gets less affordable, you find people that are upset. And uh, part of that is because we, we really uh, haven't necessarily been able to find the right balance uh, among those three. And to improve the overall image of the energy industry, is there something you think that the CEOs or the companies can do to improve the image so that people, when they walk down the street, say, wow, Chevron has done a great job for America today. How, how is, is that possible? Or just energy companies just don't have that kind of likely public image that's going to be so good? Well, I, I think what would help, David, is to engage in this more balanced conversation about the benefits of energy. We hear a lot of people that have um, you know, uh, views on what some of the consequences are of, of the use of energy. But as, as you say, they, they've had made advancements in the quality of life uh, uh, you know, possible that uh, we wouldn't have imagined uh, you know, two centuries ago. And, um, and I think as we go forward, it's absolutely likely that we find ways to meet the needs of a growing world and reduce the, the carbon impact. Let's suppose tomorrow you decided to retire, become a cabinet officer or something, or do something else. What would you say you have achieved as the CEO of Chevron that you're most proud of? Well, I, I would hope that um, people would say he, he, he thought of others first. He strengthened the culture of our company. He kept people safe and made the company uh, a better company when he left than it was when he founded. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen.